Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we do pray now that you'd help us to focus our hearts on him, to see him in all his majesty and glory, fully God and fully man, and help us to appreciate what he has done for us, to redeem us from our brokenness and make us who you want us to be. So we commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what hope is there for humanity? What hope is there for humanity? Uh, often we look out on the world and we are appalled by the terrible things that we see. Human beings can do awful things, can't they? I mean, as the horrors of war in the 20th century have passed, we might wonder why they still rage on in the 21st century as well. Uh, this year, I think many of us have been shocked by the war in Ukraine, isn't it? As very much unprovoked, Russia went into its neighboring country, causing so much needless suffering and death because one country wants to claim another country as its own. Uh, or there's the ongoing strife in North Korea. I think many of us may be worried about how one day they're just going to fire all those nuclear weapons and, and who knows what's going to happen then. Or, or even the suffering in China. I mean, many of us would have heard of the massive protests that happened in China recently uh, because uh, many people were burnt to death in their houses. They'd been kind of uh, locked in their houses by the authorities uh, to stop the spread of COVID. And then fires broke out and many people were burnt in their own homes. Horrible, horrible things that happen. And of course, there's a lot of talk about climate change these days, uh, with everyone saying it's all too little, all too late uh, to stop global temperatures rising above that one and a half degree key uh, uh, thing that was going to guard our planet about, against dangerous uh, and extreme weather conditions. It seems like no one seems to care. That, we're still using all these coal power plants, we're still consuming goods at the same uh, rate and, and so on, and no one seems to care what will be the results. Uh, we see, see it sometimes even today, isn't it, as we have heavy rains. Many of us were shocked at the, all those who died in the recent landslide down uh, in Genting. What hope is there for humanity? What hope is there? in this broken world in which we live. I think many of us long for a perfect world, a better world, a world that is free from the suffering and the pain that we often see around us. We live in a fallen world where very often our dreams don't come to fruition. Many of you are young, you have all these dreams for how life is going to be, and many of them are not going to work out as you hope they will, because we live in a world where there's often pain, there's often injustice, there's often disaster. I'm pretty sure all of those teachers and students who were at that campsite were not expecting their lives to be drastically cut short or altered if they managed to survive. It's, it's a horrible thing that we live in this world full of death and suffering that so often destroys our dreams and our families. But the wonderful news that we want to see this morning is that not only is such a world possible, a perfect world, but Jesus Christ has come to bring that world for us. And so here's the key point that we'll see today. The perfect man, Jesus, can bring a perfect 
world. The perfect man, Jesus, can bring a perfect world. Well, first, a bit of a recap. We saw in the first talk that God has made us as human beings in his image, male and female, uh, and that meant purpose. We're not accidents in this world. It meant dignity. We're all important to God by virtue of being humans, not by virtue of what we do. Uh, we've seen rule. God has given us this privileged job to rule over this creation as his stewards. And we've seen that we're made for relationship, relationship with God and relationship with one another. And so to be made in the image of God is tremendous and high calling. Uh, but we also saw yesterday morning that we've fallen far short of God's plans. Our rebellion and sin has meant that our image bearing has been distorted uh, and broken, perverted, as we don't live for God as we ought to as we don't love one another as we ought to. Our lives have been broken, our image has been distorted, and now we live in a fallen world full of suffering and death. But today we see Jesus Christ, true God, true men, the one who perfectly reveals God in all his fullness, the one who fulfills all that human beings were meant to be. Now, it's very important as we come to the New Testament that we understand that this title, image of God, can be used in two ways when it's applied to the Lord Jesus. Uh, on the one hand, by calling Jesus the image of God, it identifies Jesus as the one who is fully God, the one who is able, therefore, to reveal God the Father in all his glory. But on the other hand, this term image of God is used of Jesus to describe him as the perfect man, the one who's able to fulfill all that God intended for man. And so we're going to look at these two things in turn, Jesus as fully God, Jesus as fully man. So let's begin with the first one, fully God. Jesus reveals God in all his fullness. I think many people ask the question, how can I know there is a God? if I can't see him. I think there have been times earlier in my life where I've asked that question, okay, I've grown up in a church, or I've grown up among Christians, but how do I know that there is a real God that exists? How do I know all of this stuff is, is not made up if I, if I can't see him? And perhaps we may even ask God, you know, please reveal yourself to me. Give me some proof or give me some evidence that you are real. Give me some uh, vision or miracle or, or, or something to show me that you're here with me, that I'm not just dreaming this whole God thing up. How do we know that there's a God when we can't see him? And that is the wonderful thing we see here with Jesus being the image of God. God has done just that. He has revealed himself to us. He's shown us that he's real as he sends his son Jesus into the world to reveal God to us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He, he's talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It's a staggering description of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who makes the invisible God, who we cannot see, visible. Now, if I was to show you a, a picture of my children, I and mean, you saw them running around here uh, yesterday, if you just saw a picture of one of my children, or you saw them running around, you would know immediately that they were my children. Because to my wife's dismay, they do look rather uh, like me. 
uh, in many ways. In fact, uh, very often complete strangers will come up to me and they'll say, oh, you're Christopher's father, or you're Clarissa's father. I'm like, um, sorry, who are you? I, I, because they just recognize just by looking at the children or looking at me that we are related. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. God is invisible. God is a spirit. You can't, you can't see God. You can't touch God. But the fact that we cannot see him doesn't mean that we cannot know him. Because God has made himself known in the person of Jesus. The invisible God has made himself visible. So that as you look at the Lord Jesus, you can know perfectly what God is like. In fact, just a few verses later in Colossians chapter 1, we're told of Jesus, and it's like, that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Bible is very clear. Jesus was fully divine. All of God's fullness was in Jesus. So as you look at Jesus, you can know what God is like. And we see this many times in the scriptures. I consider this passage from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, another staggering description of Jesus. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I want you to imagine the, the thinnest piece of paper that you could imagine. Uh, I don't know how, how thin it could possibly be, but imagine the, the thinnest piece of paper. You could not squeeze that paper between the Father and the Son. You, you couldn't find the slightest difference. He is the exact imprint, do you see, of his nature, such that you can look at the Lord Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures, and you can know what God is like. Uh, and that's the point that comes out in the beginning of, of John's Gospel, and I guess which we will celebrate this uh, this Christmas, Jesus reveals God perfectly to us in all his glory and majesty. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 14. This is the word, and again it's talking about Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, young Dipertuan Argon lives in a great uh, istana down in KL. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to visit it. I, of course, haven't. I just drive down the road and you can kind of peer in as it's sitting there on the mountain, all covered uh, in magnificent gold. That's where kings live, isn't it? Luxury, majesty, comfort. But here is the remarkable news of Christmas, that God leaves his heavenly throne, his heavenly palace, and he takes up residence in our earthly kampung, if you like. God came to dwell amongst us, a baby in a manger, the infinite, almighty, eternal creator God, born as a helpless, limited, weak baby. There's something that is startling and staggering about such a claim. There at the birth of Jesus, God shines forth his glory and his grace and his truth. And how is that the case? It's, well, it's because uh, Jesus leaves the glories of heaven for us. Jesus is humiliated in that stable for us. Jesus enters into our sinful world and suffers in our sinful world.
for us, Jesus enters our world at Christmas because of Easter. We celebrate Christmas because of Easter, because Jesus came to die. He was born as a baby, that he might die on a cross. And as Jesus enters the world, he shows what the invisible God is like. And that's what John says in verse 18 of that passage. It's like, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God. The only God, the second one then, the only God's talking about Jesus, fully God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so till Jesus came, no one had seen God face to face. Uh, in fact, in the Old Testament, if you were to see the face of God, you would be immediately struck down dead because sinful human beings can't come into the presence of a holy God. You will be struck down dead immediately. But we're told here when Jesus came and you looked him in the eye, you were looking at God, God in human flesh. You could observe his compassion, you could see his humility, you could feel his love, you could observe his mighty power and justice, his grace towards wicked and sinful people. You could look at Jesus and know exactly what God was like. I think you can argue for the existence of God in lots of different ways. Uh, we could point to the beauty of creation, you can go out and look out the beach out there, and you can think, what a marvelous and beautiful world in which we live. How could such a thing just be an accident that appears. You could point to the complexity of the human body, maybe the complexity of the human eye, which no machine that so far is able to replicate in any meaningful way. And you could say, well, if there's such magnificent design, surely there's an intelligent designer who has made all of this. Perhaps you could uh, point to the existence of a, of a common morality that we as human beings feel that certain things is right and wrong. I mean, if, if there is no God and there is no purpose, then why are things right or wrong? Shouldn't you just, doesn't evolution say, survival of the fittest, do whatever's good for you personally? Why should there be morality at all? I think those are all con convincing arguments that we should believe in God. But here John is saying Jesus is the best advertisement, if you like, for the existence of God. If you want to know God exists, look at Jesus. See what he was like. See what he did. Uh, later on in John's Gospel, uh, Jesus' disciple uh, Philip, he poses a question uh, to Jesus. Uh, he, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Say, Jesus, just let me see God. That's enough. Then I'll believe. I can be sure. I'll be confident. I'll be hopeful. Just let me see God, and that will be enough. And Jesus makes a very staggering response to Philip in the next verse. He says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? You don't need to, you don't need me to show God. If you've met me and you've seen me, you've already seen what God is like. 
And in John's Gospel, we see this fleshed out. Jesus' words are his Father's words. He doesn't speak of his own accord. He speaks whatever his Father has given him to say. Jesus' works are his Father's works, as he, as he does all his signs. He's, he's revealing what God is like. Jesus' character is his Father's character. His love, his mercy, his grace, his justice is just what God is like. Jesus' glory is his Father's glory, and so on. How can you say, show us the Father? Haven't you seen that's the staggering claim of Jesus, the staggering claim of Christianity. God has made himself known in history in the person of Jesus. And so we must look to Jesus and not to our own imagination to know what God is like. I think many people believe in a God of some description. Most people in the world are not atheists. There are some atheists in the world, but most people believe in a God of some description. But what we see here is that the true God, the true and living God who exists, who rules the universe, he's chosen to reveal himself in one way only, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so that means if we want to know the true God, we have to look at Jesus. Jesus alone is God in human flesh. Jesus alone has come to make God known. I think a lot of religion is, is basically people thinking about what God uh, is like. Uh, in, in much religion, it's about creating the kind of God that you like to believe in. Some people uh, approach religion like this. They'll say, oh, look at this religion. I like that part. I'll take that. This religion, I'll take that part. You know, there's that uh, confectionery shop that you see around. I think it's called Mixed, right? And you go in there and you take a bit of this uh, sweets and a bit of those chips and whatever. You just take a bit, mix and match. Uh, go to the counter and, and, and make it your own. Lots of people uh, approach religion in that, in that way. They construct their gods in the image of man. It's like that, isn't it? If you look at the Buddhist gods, the Hindu gods, and lots of other, the gods of other religions too, they look like people. They construct their gods in the image of man rather than believing that man is in the image of God. But as Christians, we don't believe that we need to somehow search for God or imagine God or make God up. We believe that God came down. God revealed himself in the person of Jesus. So if you, how do you know that God exists? Look at Jesus. If you're not sure that there's a God, why don't you open the Bible, look at one of the Gospels, maybe John's Gospel we've looked at this morning, and look at the claims of Jesus, look at the words of Jesus, the works of Jesus, and see what God is like. Can you know God apart from Jesus? No, you can't. God is not who I hope he will be. God is not who I want him to be. I might not want God to be a loving God, but not a just God, but it doesn't mean that it's true, you see. That might be just like saying, I hope that I'm going to... Uh, you know, get seven A stars in my exams even though I don't study. I mean, I, I could hope that that could be true, isn't it? But it's probably not going to be. God is not who I want him to be. God is not who I'm told he is. God is who he has revealed himself to be in his son, Jesus Christ. So that's the first point this morning. Jesus is fully God who reveals the invisible God to us. Uh, but not only does uh, Jesus as the image of God point to him being fully God, it also describes him as being fully man. The one who, in, 
who fulfills all that God intended for humanity. Uh, and, and so let's turn again to Colossians 1 and verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And I'm sure you, as you read that, that verse, you can't help but wandering back to Genesis 1 verse 26. God created human beings in his image. It was always God's intention that humanity would rule over the world that God has made. And you see what this verse is saying. Jesus is the man, the perfect man, who perfectly rules it as God intended. He's the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was a, a created being. There was a heretic in the early church called Arius uh, who taught that Jesus was a created being and then he created all the, the rest of creation. It's still what Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. That's a heresy. That's not what this means. To say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation means that he is the heir. You see, in those days, if you were the oldest, the firstborn, then that meant that when your parents died, you got, you got the inheritance, you see. Jesus is the perfect man who will rule over everything. You see, he will inherit the whole of creation. All of it will belong to him under his rule. And, and the reasons given in the following verse, uh, verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now we're kind of switching back to Jesus' divinity again and we see that it, the Bible says the whole world was made through Jesus. He was the agent of creation. And did you notice those staggering words? Why was our world made? All things were created through him and for him. Sometimes people ask the question, why are we here? What is the purpose of life? What's God's purpose for me? Well, here it is actually. It's stated very clear, clearly for us. All things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. Why do you exist? Why are you here? Why did God give you life? for Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. Every breath that you are given, every bit of intelligence you've been given, every piece of health you've been given, everything that you have is given that you may bring glory to Jesus. And I think this is something that we need to grasp in this age of self-determination, where we think that our purpose in life is to maximize our happiness or maximize our comfort or maximize my bank account or whatever it is, to do what I want to do and to make myself fulfilled and happy. No, your life is not your own. It belongs to Jesus. Life is not about your happiness. Life is about the glory of Jesus. Why do you do your studies? You do it for Jesus. Why do you rest? You do it for Jesus. Everything you do for Jesus, he is the reason the universe exists. And as this passage goes on, it, it says that he is going to rule not just now, but he's going to rule for all of eternity. So verse 18, that's the next slide. Next slide, next yes. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent. And to say that Jesus is the head of the church here means that not only has Christ come to rule over this present world that we live in, but he's going to rule over the future world as well. Right now, this present world is in a state of decay. That's why there's COVID. That's why there's all kinds of disasters that we see around us. And one day, this world we live in will be destroyed. But not so God's people. You see, the church, those who have trusted in Jesus as their saviour and king, they've been given new life. They will one day be resurrected to live with Jesus in a new creation. And we know that death is not the end. We know that there is life past death because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And here we're told that he is the firstborn from the dead, which means he's going to rule over the future age as well. Not only the present, but the world to come. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is the perfect man who rules this world. Now we see this truth reflected in another passage in the book of Hebrews. We spent a bit of time on this this morning. It says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. The world to come here is talking about heaven. It's talking about the new creation. Uh, the world, the perfect world that we hope will one day come. And the author's point in, in Hebrews 2 is that that new world, that, that perfect world, that new creation that we hope for, will be ruled by the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And to make that point, he, he brings us back to Psalm 8. You might remember we quoted that in the first talk uh, yesterday. Uh, Psalm 8, this is what he says. Next slide. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of? You want the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And this was our, our glorious reflection that even though we are just such weak and finite creatures, that God has bestowed upon us such great honor that he would call us to rule this world, this wonderful world that he has made. And his point here is that, well, that rule over this world, even though we have failed to do it properly, it will be exercised by one man, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. So he goes on in verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection under him. It's a point that we are, I guess, painfully aware of. That actually, we, this world is not really fully in our control, is it? So often, there are so many disasters and things that happen. We wish that we could stop the earthquakes. We wish we could stop the hurricanes and the fires and, and, and so on. But we just can't, isn't it? We, we, we can't rule the world properly. The world is wild in so many ways. The author knows this. But he also wants us to see that Jesus, God's true and perfect man, is ruling this world right now. Verse 9, he says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour. He's saying that Jesus is the fulfilment of this psalm. He is the man who rules over this world as God always intended. He was made a little lower than the angels when he was born as a man, when he took on human flesh. 
And as he died on the cross, defeating Satan, uh, he was raised from the dead, he conquered death, and then he ascended to heaven to rule this world as the perfect man. So that right now, everything in this world is under the rule of King Jesus. We know that it's because when, when Jesus was alive in this world, what did he do? He could calm a storm with a word. He could say to a sick man, get up, and, he, and they would get up immediately. He could even raise the dead. Jesus did all of these amazing miracles, showing his total and perfect control over this creation. And he died and rose again to sit on the throne of heaven as the man ruling this world. But I guess what is slightly unexpected as we read on in this passage is the reason that's given why Jesus is crowned as the king of heaven. And it's because he suffered death on earth. Look at verse 9, it continues. We see him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus is crowned as king of heaven because he suffered death on the cross. Uh, Jesus' death doesn't only lead to Jesus crowning as king, but we're told here it gives us hope that we too may one day be who God wants us to be. We're told that Jesus came to taste death not just for himself, but to taste death for everyone. Jesus came into this world as that perfect man so that he could die so that he could take on himself that curse of death that we deserve, so that we might have hope in the future. He continues in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death have been subject to lifelong slavery. Many people, I, I find, uh, are afraid of death. Uh, my father-in-law is like that. He's very wary of uh, flying on planes because he's afraid that they're you know, going to crash, like MH370. Uh, he prefers to drive or maybe catch the train because he considers that safer. Uh, if he has the slightest... Uh, uh, sickness or illness or be straight to the doctor straight to the specialist to, uh, to, to, to check it out lots of people are afraid of death aren't they I mean maybe you guys are quite young you haven't thought much about it but then again we've just had COVID and I take it that many of us will, will have known at least one person who has passed away over this last couple of years in pandemic it, it, it really uh, wakes us to the reality that we might not live a full and long life, that death may come to, to us at any moment. We are not invincible creatures. God said at the beginning, if you eat from the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. Satan said it was a lie, but we know it to be a reality because each and every person will one day die in one form or another. God said, you are dust, to dust you shall return. As a pastor, I have had to do many funerals as we put people into the furnace or into the ground. 
each one of us will one day face death. Each one of us will one day have to face God, our Creator. And we're told here that the devil holds people in his power. The picture of Satan here is like a jailer standing over our lives, condemning us before God, saying he deserves death, he deserves judgment, he holds us in his grip, the great enemy of God, accusing us of our sin before a righteous God, enslaving us to fear of death and fear of what is to come after death. It's interesting to go to a funeral of a non-believer, isn't it? There's often so many uh, ceremonies or superstitions, we might say, that is done to, in the hope that you can guarantee that the person will have a better life to come. You burn paper money hoping that it's somehow going to get to the afterlife and make them rich. I never understand why you don't really burn uh, real money instead of uh, paper money. Well, actually, we know that, isn't it? Uh, too expensive to burn real money instead of paper money or paper cards. But it's, it's a hope, it's a dream that, that somehow you can take it all with you. The Egyptian pharaohs did that, isn't it? They would be buried with all their treasures. The Chinese emperors would do that, bury themselves with all their terracotta warriors and all their treasures in the tomb with them, hoping that you could take it, take it with them. But once they're dug up a few thousand years later, guess what? It's all still there. You can't take your treasures with you past the grave. From the very beginning, as human beings, death is a reality for our lives, a fearful reality. But also remember, right back at the beginning, we saw this yesterday, God had promised someone who would defeat the Satan, someone who would bring life again. A descendant of Eve would crush Satan's head and bring us new life. Remember that promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Jesus was that serpent crusher. He came to be the perfect man Eve's descendant, who would share our humanity so that he could rescue us from the power and the fear of death. That's why Jesus had to be born as a man. That's why he had to come at Christmas and, and bear human flesh. It was so he could die. God cannot die, you see. God's a spirit. God is immortal. God cannot die. But Jesus, in the person of Jesus, God takes on human flesh so that he can die on the cross, fully God and fully man. And as a man, then, he takes the punishment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven. Jesus comes to deliver us from death by dying in our place, taking that punishment we deserve for us so that Satan can accuse us no more. He can't say, look, you're a sinner. You failed God. You haven't fully kept God's commands because... Jesus has taken it all on himself. Jesus has, has borne the punishment already. We are fully and perfectly forgiven. And we can know for certain that Jesus succeeded in saving us because he didn't just save dead in the grave. Three days later, he was raised again. He conquered death. We can know that he has conquered death. We can know this life after death because Jesus is risen. And so this is our great hope. Jesus, 
the perfect image of God, fully God, revealing God to us in all his majesty, fully man, come to die for us on the cross. And we might ask, how does Jesus' death rescue us from death and the devil? And it's kind of explained in the following verses. Verse 16, it says, For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here again we're reminded why Jesus had to become Man. Jesus is described here as a, as a high priest. What's a priest? A priest is someone who represents God to people and people to God. A priest is like a, a mediator or, or, or an in-between. And a priest's job, of course, in the Old Testament was to offer sacrifices. Sacrifices to pay for sin so that sinful people could be in relationship with a holy God. But the thing is, a priest can only represent people who are like them, you see. Unless Jesus became like us in every respect, unless he was a fully human in every way, then he would not be able to die in our place on the cross. He would not be able to take our sin for us. He had to be really human. He had to experience temptation like we experience temptation. He had to experience weakness like we experience weakness. He had to experience suffering and grief like we experience suffering and grief. Only then, if he was fully human, could he represent us, could he substitute for us uh, on the cross. But here we're told Jesus was perfectly human, fully man, and so he's able to be our representative. He's able to die for us on the cross. And, and what a comfort this is, especially verse 18. He's able to help those who He's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus understands our struggles. Jesus understands our weakness. Sometimes in this fallen world we can go through some very difficult things. And, and, and sometimes we, we might think, well, no one, no one else really understands what I'm going through. But there is always one who understands. We're told here the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned, to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to be distressed, to be worried about the future. Jesus understands our struggles in a way no one else can. Jesus understands our struggle with sin. He understands how hard it is to say no to sin again and again and again and again. See, the fact that Jesus was fully God, God in human flesh, it in no way diminishes the suffering or the temptation that he felt. If you said he, you know, Jesus was some kind of superman that uh, you know, he didn't really experience temptation like us. You know, you know temptation just bounced off him, uh, uh, you know, as if he had an iron chest or something. No, Jesus is not some superhero in that way. To say that he was not like us would mean that he couldn't save us. You know, Jesus can really understand us 
And so as we struggle in this world with all manner of sufferings, as we struggle with sin in all manner of ways, Jesus understands. Jesus sympathizes with us because he was perfectly man, fully man. And not only that, more importantly, he can help us. He can save us. He can mediate for us. Because he was like us in every way, he could take that punishment for us. And so if you are afraid of death, if you are afraid of what's going to happen to you when you die, you are now doing everything possible to avoid it, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who can give you hope now and in the future. Well, as we, as we finish then, what is the hope for humanity? What is the hope for humanity? I think as we look around us, everything can look quite bleak and tragic much of the time. There is so much pain and disappointment that we see around us, that we experience in our own lives. People can really hurt others, and sometimes we ourselves are the cause of it. But here we see God has, in his love, has not doomed us to endless decay. He has not abandoned us to death and eternal judgment. But he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He came into our sinful and broken world in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, as fully God, he made God known to us in all his glory and majesty and love. And as the perfect human being, he lived the life that we have not lived, and he died the death that we deserve, and he rose again, that we could have the hope of being redeemed from this broken state, so that we can have true hope of life in a perfect world with him. And so if you've not already turned to Jesus as your King and Savior, can I ask you today, please turn to Jesus. Please trust in him. Because he is the only hope that you have of forgiveness with God. He is the only hope that you have past death of life with God. Only Jesus offers renewed hope to humanity. But it doesn't just end there. It's not just uh, all for the future. We'll see in the talk tomorrow. Not only has Jesus redeemed us from our sins so that we can have that wonderful future, but right now, he is remaking us into God's image, renewing us that we might be and live in all the ways that God intended, that we might once again be restored as God's image bearers and live for his glory. More of that tomorrow. But now let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we do not need to reach out to you or imagine what you are like, but you have come down and revealed yourself to us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and love, that you were willing to step into our world with all of its brokenness and decay to save sinful people like us. We 
thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus, who lived that perfect life as a human, who always loved you, who always loved others, who demonstrated perfect and complete rule over this creation. And we thank you that right now, he sits on the throne of heaven, ruling this world. Lord, this world is not chaos, it's not out of control, but everything is happening according to his plan and purpose. And Lord, we thank you for the hope that you have given us, that one day we may share in a perfect world with you, because he has died for us and he has risen. And so, Lord, as we face this world with all of its suffering and uncertainty, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to keep trusting in him as our Saviour and King. We pray this in Jesus' name.